Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. One of the tragic truths of psychiatry is that the sickest patients, more often than not, either don't realize they're ill or are convinced that treatment will do nothing. And no group of patients better exemplifies this than those with schizophrenia and other psychotic illnesses. A common presentation in my office is an older adolescent or young adult, often male, who's descending into psychosis and also completely unaware of the illness or need for treatment. And meanwhile, the parents are telling me of frightening threats, explosive outbursts, bizarre behaviors, profound social isolation, and paranoid beliefs. This episode today is the first of two parts. In part one, Karen, the mother of Sam, describes the progression of his illness and how she's grieved and coped and parented him. In part two, in two weeks, we'll hear from Lori and Dave, who also have a son with severe mental illness. And these two stories are both the same and also different in some key ways. One thing they both share is that their sons, after some very scary times, both finally agreed to cooperate with treatment. But how do you get your child into treatment when they're too ill to cooperate? I think this then gets to the three L's, love, loot, and the law. Sometimes the power of love can break through and the ill child will agree to treatment to assuage the parents. Other times, financial support or gifts or bribes can work. Thus, parents can use their loot to convince the child to get into treatment. The final L, however, is the most traumatic for all involved. And unfortunately, a common route into treatment for the seriously ill child is often the legal system, whether through involuntary hospital stays, jail, court-ordered meds, mandated UAs and BAs, and with the threat of longer-term incarceration. In these two stories, their sons finally agreed to treatment for what I would say was a combination of love and the law. Despite their devastating illnesses, both sons were able to maintain some level of trust and connection with their parents. Also, both of them had just enough insight and judgment to fear the legal consequences of their escalating behaviors. Karen's husband decided not to participate in this recording, but he was fully supportive of her telling her story. Well, the presentation of the illness like was sudden at onset, but actually looking back at it, I think there were a lot of signs that something was going on because there were behaviors in high school that were not normal to his personality from his youth. So probably starting sophomore year in high school, he was always very intelligent, sensitive, sweet, empathetic kid, really, really good with numbers. I was excited to see where like his giftedness was going to go in life. And so starting in his sophomore year in high school, he started to become very uninterested in learning and even his love of math declined. And so he started failing in high school, which was a concern to us, but not a huge concern. We got tutors. We tried to help him out and even offered him, do you want to get your GED? Maybe high school isn't for you. Maybe this is too stressful. But he stayed in high school and just began to decline in his behavior outside of even his education, like just more deviant behavior, began smoking weed regularly, daily, a lot of lying, a lot of 
going out with his friends, sneaking out. And again, like it's behavior that a lot of adolescents have. So we thought, okay, well, maybe this is normal behavior. He's going through a rebellious stage. But it just, it got worse and worse and worse. And he barely graduated high school. He actually did graduate. And that summer, we said, let's just take a break from work, from school, just take a break from everything and enjoy the summer. Let's talk and what you're going to do in the fall. At that point, were you thinking that this could be psychiatric? Or were you Not at all. Of, like, this is just a kid who's sort of gone off the rails and... Yeah playing badly and just yeah doing things that you wish he wouldn't do. Right. Yeah. Struggling with himself, struggling with who he was, yeah, doing badly. Of course, using uh I only knew about the marijuana but found out later that there were more drugs involved. So, his birthday is in September and so we had some amazing weekends of celebration in September of 2018. So he was he was turning 19. And went to Utah camping, uh, went to San Diego. I mean, big birthday <laughs> celebrations. And then a week after we got back from one of those weekends, he went out with his friends for the weekend and came back a completely different person. I mean, just strange behavior, saying stuff that didn't make sense, acting very sporadically, all of a sudden just extremely rude and argumentative and just absolutely a different person. It was very confusing. And we found out that he had used some LSD over that weekend. And so I was thinking maybe this is a residual effect from the LSD. He's kind of caught in a in his trip or something. Or maybe he's still using because he would run out at night, leave the house like violently and um, not return until the morning. So, so this was the crisis stage. This is the onset. So it, it presented. It seemed all of a sudden he was a different person. He had a psychotic break. And still, no, I had no thought at all that this was psychosis. I didn't know anything about psychosis or schizophrenia, really, except that it was a scary word, and I didn't want anything to do with it. So I would say that crisis, that crisis time of complete tornado of everything turning upside down. He's a completely different person. It's, it was extremely scary. That lasted probably about a total of six weeks. And during that six weeks, he had moments of catatonia where he didn't speak for three days at all. And his, his actions were very robotic and like going to the fridge 20 times and getting water, sipping it, putting it down. I mean, really strange behavior. Then at about the six-week mark, he came out of his catatonia, and that's when he got really violent with me and threatened my life. I was on the phone with my husband, and he was at work and was very upset. And um, then my son came down and like took my phone and said something and threw the phone. So my husband called the police, and they came. And that's when we got an involuntary hold on him for three days, which was a saving time because it gave us three days to kind of process and say, what are we going to do? Because something's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, that was the presentation. So looking back, it looks like in hindsight, there was a, 
a period, which now we know is a prodrome, a prodromal period through high school where things were slowly, steadily falling apart, and then a dramatic break, mm-hmm. possibly catalyzed by substance use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So is that how you came to find me? Which he was admitted to the hospital on this three-day hold. No, no. It took a little longer to find you because he was absolutely resistant to any anything, any treatment. So actually what we did is we took him out of the state because we we felt like we needed to get him away from drug, like marijuana, just because it was obvious that that was making it worse. So get him away from the people he knew, get him away from the substances. So he spent actually, and we even did an intervention because at this time I still thought it was drugs. I mm-hmm. thought he was addicted to drugs. And so I had a... <laughs> A rehabilitation place picked out. We did a little intervention. And he actually stayed with my husband's cousin for four months in a different state because we didn't want him to be here. We thought it was not safe for him to be here. Still, was he psychotic during that time? He did have, yeah. I mean, he, he's, he had periods of psychosis for sure. And it was helpful for us to ground and say, what are we going to do? But it and I think it was helpful for him. It just gave us the space we needed, and he was safe, somewhat safe, mm-hmm. out there. Um, yeah, so it was during that time, that was the spring of 2019, that my husband's therapist recommended you, and I think even somehow contacted you to get us in with you. So we had this appointment set in the books, knowing that when he got home, there was a huge chance that he would not go. But we were like, let's make an appointment anyway and get this set up. So first, when they got home, they actually went to Spain to do the Camino because at the time, we're still thinking he needs like some spiritual something or, you know, this is a drug thing. This is a personal thing. But, you know, you can't walk schizophrenia out of you. Mm -hmm. So when they got back from the Camino um, is when he had an appointment with you. And... I do not know how we got him to go, but he agreed to go. if I might just read from this note. I just pulled this up. So let's see. I saw Sam June of 2019 and he came with dad and he, his first thing he said to me is, I don't know why I'm here. Uh, And here's how I described him. I said, um, let's see, dreadlocks, uncomfortable staring, no spontaneous speech, inappropriate smile much of the time, poverty of speech and thought, long delays in response to my questions, thought blocking question mark, slowed thought process, awkward interpersonally, no insight into illness, and possibly attending to internal stimuli at points during the evaluation. And in my impression, I wrote, 19-year-old with either schizophrenia or substance-induced psychosis. And I remember, I see see so many cases like this, and I remember thinking like, oh man, I hope this is just drugs. Mm -hmm. I hope because if it's drugs and he stays away from the weed particularly, like he Mm -hmm. could snap back and come back to him. But I also remember hearing about what we now know as the prodrome, 
mm-hmm. in high school, the, the withdrawal and the pulling away and the failing out of school. And I, you know, that's such a classic schizophrenia thing. So I remember this, even this first meeting, having this real sense of dread that mm-hmm. we were starting down a, the path of schizophrenia. Yeah, me too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because actually my sister-in-law is a psychiatrist, so I spent a lot of time talking to her. And I just kept trying to get her to tell me this could be a drug-induced psychosis. That's what I wanted it to be as well. And the idea of schizophrenia absolutely freaked me out. Mm-hmm. So I was still hoping that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about those early weeks and months You know, after I first met Sam and um, we're trying to get him on a medication and you know at least from my end it's becoming more and more clear that this is schizophrenia and I'm wondering what was happening what you remember on your end both with you and your husband and it's coming to the reckoning of that possibility mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if I was coming at the reckoning yet I was trying to but I was still just really trying to control the situation and keep him away from marijuana hoping that if he was kept away from it, he would get back, <laughs> I guess. So, and that, that, took, that was a full-time job trying to keep him away from that. And I couldn't, I mean, you can't, I couldn't control that. So I don't even know when I fully accepted it. I think it's only been in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. actually. Was there a difference between you and your husband in terms of the acceptance process, because I'm wondering, like, when yeah. a when a bomb gets dropped like this, and I don't remember exactly when I said to you that that was my impression, what was likely going on, but I, I could imagine that, you know, almost like stages of grief or shock that that you and your husband could, you know, accept the diagnosis differentially, which again then starts leading to this whole process of grief mm-hmm. and grieving differently, mm-hmm. right? Oh, totally, because. In the beginning, I don't even know that I was grieving. I was just surviving and hoping. I think accepting it was a place then where I had to grieve because acceptance of some, a diagnosis like that is a huge loss. It's a permanent loss in a way. I mean, mm. it's not a temporary I think it loss. is, especially with the yeah. severe Sam's illnesses. Yeah. I mean, barring some huge breakthrough in medicine, like it, it does appear permanent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so how our acceptance, I mean, it's, it's so hard to remember because it, it just so much of that time just felt like I was in these deep waters trying to stay afloat in a way and like trying to breathe. And so it just felt like a survival. So a, 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 week, a month after we started seeing you, he actually agreed to medication. And I think getting him on the medication and kind of this this effort towards stabilization. Because that's, I mean, stabilization is different than recovery. Stabilization mm-hmm. is just like, let's just get him stable so that um, we're, everything isn't unpredictable. His behavior is more pre- a little more predictable. But I think that's when maybe I started on the road to acceptance because I did start attending NAMI support group and I went to the educational class that NAMI offers. And so I was on the acceptance road during that time after the medication because it did stabilize him. Do you remember being, I can imagine there could be some anger or 
frustration. I even wonder like if there could be some upset with me because yes, I'm trying to help, but I'm mm-hmm. the bearer of <laughs> horrific news. Like you come to me, mm-hmm. oh, you should go see Dr. Hickok. And then I say, yeah, this, this looks like schizophrenia. Yeah. I mean, to drop that bomb on your family. Yeah. I mean, I did not have, what I had was when, because I remember the first time I came with my husband and Sam to the appointment, because I think the first two, I wasn't there because Sam didn't want me to be there. And then the first time I came, I asked you if it could be drug-induced psychosis. And you were pretty certain that it wasn't. So I think the only thing I felt like is like, does he really know? He doesn't really know. Because I still didn't want to admit it. But definitely no anger. It felt more like a relief in a way to have someone that was helping him. Because there's no, I mean, it felt like there was no help out there. Mm -hmm. So... It felt like a relief to actually have you come into our situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. too there's there's we talked about this i think a couple seasons ago with another set of parents but i think with schizophrenia there's a there's a kind and quality of grief which is maybe different than any other psychiatric illness because like if you have a child with severe bipolar disorder anorexia any of a number of other things you you don't necessarily lose the core essence of of the son or daughter like there are Mm -hmm. times when you can see there's my girl there's my boy and now they're back in the darkness but especially with you know pretty serious schizophrenia it's like it's it's like an abduction of of the person like it's like the old person is gone and there's this now this very different soul there that doesn't it may share some of the same qualities but it, like the person's gone mhm absolutely yeah actually it's it's called an ambiguous loss because it's the um an ambiguous loss can either be there, there psychologically and not physically. So that would be in the case of an actual abduction mm-hmm. of somebody's loved one. Or they are there physically but not psychologically, which is the case of schizophrenia and dementia. Dementia is another one where people experience ambiguous loss. And the grief is actually like even amplified because it's, it's like a disenfranchised grief that because there's such a – it's a death, it's a loss – but it's not recognized by society or by institutions or any or people because the, they're still there. Mm-hmm. And so you're experiencing that grief without a lot of the um, support that you would if you actually mm-hmm. lost someone to death. In some ways, does Sam feel gone to you? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's that's a daily struggle. I feel like, I mean, there's a new normal that's emerging for sure. And the longer I go from the time of his break, the more I forget about who, what he was like before. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, and the grief is so complicated too, because you, this is your child that is still there. And then, but all, so, and it gets triggered at times by, his peers when they graduate high school or they or college or get married or get their first job or have these big life events. 
and you're not experiencing that, all those hopes and dreams you have for your child, you know, that we, when they're born or when they're, when you're seeing them become who they are. So it's just, it's a constant grieving process. I mean, the grief comes in waves and it's, I don't know that it will ever completely go away. I think the time between will get less and less, but. Mm -hmm. Or even now, I was just thinking before we started recording that Sam has come so far and that he is stable. You know, he's not (laughs) having homicidal stuff. He's not, you, he doesn't seem overtly ill in the way he did when, Mm -hmm. when I met him. But if you start to question him, he's still delusional in some things. Like, you know, he believes that, that you two aren't his actual parents, that he, um, you know, that he was adopted by you in in a very strange, bizarre way. And that he does feel that you care about him, but that you're not, actually related to him mm-hmm. and, and it, when i when i think about that i think of like, again like this ambiguous grief like he's very sweet it's like mm-hmm. it's very sweet in appointments to see you guys together like he clearly has a a loving bond with you yet when at least when he speaks in a way where he feels like he can he'll say yeah that you know mm-hmm. you know he'll he calls you by your first name you know right karen's, right. karen's not my mom right she's not my mother right yeah. exactly yeah Ooh, that was, yeah, <laughs> that definitely, that, that began, or at least we were made aware of those thoughts like uh, about a year and a half ago. He told us that, yeah, and that was just another, you know, wave of grief. Like, and yeah, I had to, that's another area of acceptance, accepting that this is a fixed delusion that he has, but it's not going to change the way I care about him or mm-hmm. he is my son so <laughs> yeah. well, in some ways like what we see when we think about just this one phenomenon that there is this sweet caring between yeah. you and he and yet then there's this part of him that's not sam that's like no I, oh yeah i you know i'm not from them i came from another place some sort of vague ambiguous place that he talks about mm-hmm I wonder if we might transition into talking a little bit, a bit about grief and acceptance and coping and how that affected your marriage. Now, um, your husband's not here. He mm-hmm. he was fine with you telling the story, mm-hmm. um, but you two are now heading towards divorce. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he was comfortable with you talking about this. And, and we're not here to tell his story. I'm, you right. know, this is your story. But I wonder if you might speak a little bit to how Sam's illness and the events of the last few years may have affected your marriage and, and even like differential grieving or coping with the two of you that could have played a role in that. Yeah. It, I mean, it's interesting cause I, I can see that maybe it played a little role, but I think what happened really was that this illness or the onset of this illness actually like shined a big spotlight on things that were already there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the issues that were there, um, were just illuminated. It wasn't because of this situation. And I don't know um, if this hadn't happened, would it have ended in the same way? I don't, I don't know that, but I think it, uh, it did shine a light on it. And then when you're both, also, you have this emotional, mental, physical 
situation that you're constantly putting into, which is the, our our son. I think it makes it harder to work on the issues that were already there, yeah. because so much of your energy, the energy is going to caring for our son mm -hmm. and both of our energy. I mean, that's the thing I'm really grateful for is that there is a teamwork here. Despite our relationship, we both care for him and want to stay a team in mm -hmm. caring for him. And you have another child who's grown, which I can, I can imagine that um, having that child grown and launched is actually maybe a big relief because you know, mm -hmm. if this had happened eight, 10 years ago, Get, that's definitely a phenomenon I see a lot in my work where there's a kid that's so ill that requires all the emotional mm -hmm. energy of the parents and then there's this vacuum and the other kid or kids really get neglected and or are kind of expected to be perfect because they're like, look, we have this sick kid, your brother or sister's very ill, you need to hold it together because we got to take mm -hmm. care of this person. But fortunately, your family, your other child's grown. Yes. Yeah. It still affected her greatly, even though she wasn't living in the home. And there's been a lot of healing that's been done because of that. But mm -hmm. yes, and I actually wanted a lot more kids. So <laughs> I always think, oh, I'm so glad I did it. Because mm -hmm. that would have been difficult for yeah. sure. Yeah. How do you, I, I know it's just, I mean, you're not divorced yet, but I would mm -hmm. imagine it's crossed your mind and your husband's mind that um, even though you are separating, you have your children together and you have Sam together and mm -hmm. Sam's going to need your support with physical, financial, emotional, you know, indefinitely. Mm -hmm. So there's this issue of the two of you being apart, trying to help him. And then the longer term issue, which we can get to of what happens when you're gone. But I'm wondering how the two of you think about caring for him mm -hmm. as you move towards divorce. I mean, right now, the way we think about it is that we want to communicate clearly about it together, always be consciously friendly and friends and talk about it, talk, talk about, communicate openly about his care. And I, I hope that can continue because it's really, really helpful to have a partner in um, caretaking mm -hmm. and not doing it alone. And um, I don't think either of us want the other person to have to do it alone. So as long as we can stay on that track. I think we can do it. I think we can do a good job with that. Yeah. Do you think Sam trusts you each equally? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Mm. I actually don't know the answer to that question. Because um, again, I'm imagining yeah. in this kind of fixed delusion where, where he is now that you two are caring for him and he has some gratitude for that, yeah. but also is doesn't see you as related at all. Right, true. I know he likes his being with his dad better. Um, I don't know if it's a trust issue or just because they enjoy some of the same things. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to be moving mm -hmm. forward. Do you yeah. ever still feel fearful around him? Because you talked about you mm, know one of the initial right. presentations of when he had his break was that he right. got homicidal. Not anymore. Mm -hmm. I did for probably of the first year or two because I was I was the target for his aggression as well, the mother. Mm. <laughs> but not anymore. No, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a very, he's a gentle person and he's very, he actually, this is some, I see these qualities, like he's still very caring and gentle and he just doesn't always know how to be mm -hmm. in that. But yeah. <laughs> so actually, I think that's a really powerful description of one of the things that's kind of lost with often with schizophrenia is not knowing how to be. Yeah. 
not knowing mm-hmm. how to be in the world, not knowing how to be in relationship, mm-hmm. not knowing how to be in the grocery store, right. like not just not like being kind of alien, like looking around, like I don't really fit in here. Mm-hmm. I mean, and in fact, and that's my sense with this delusion about you not being his mother is like this is part of the alienation of schizophrenia that he, at a core, at his core, he knows that he is so separate and mm-hmm. so different now than he was but he, he can't really put words to it so he's putting it onto you like yeah. you're kind of the alien you're the you're the different one you're you're the unknown one yeah you're, you're, i you're, think that makes sense to me yeah you're yeah. not <laughs> you're not who you say you are mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah When you think about the future um, and you think about Sam, like what, what are some of your main fears or concerns as you look forward? Yeah, I was, you know, I, I actually don't have a lot of fears or worries. I, they are pretty minimal. And I think that's just because of the way I've, I've coped with the loss through a lot of mindfulness, a lot of being present, a lot of all I have is today. This is what we have doesn't mean I think it's, I do think you need to plan for the future, but I don't have a lot of worries. I think my, my main worry is actually that he's not going to be healthy because he has some unhealthy habits that could contribute later in life to some really not so good quality of life. Um, besides what he, besides his mental illness. You're thinking of like smoking. Smoking. Yeah. yeah. But that's such a thing with schizophrenia. It is. Seems yeah. like almost everybody with schizophrenia smokes. Yeah. It's just, it's a helps po- them feel better. Yeah. So. Now, there is some research that yeah. nicotine, cal- I mean, calms the brain of everybody, but mm-hmm. people with schizophrenia will, can, will report when they can. It dials down voices, it dials down sort of mm. the, the pain and dysphoria of delusions. And mm-hmm. there's just something that's sort of peace inducing about it. Yeah. Which is, yeah. <laughs> but interestingly, when I've tried to get my patients with schizophrenia, hey, just use a nicotine patch or gum. No, no, no. No, it's not no, the same. No, they, they want the cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. yeah. And I guess if I really dug deep, I mean, I mean, certainly worries like creep up, but yeah, I don't think a lot about it. I do, which is planning is not, I'm not the best planner. So that is something I am, I am trying to do like, to plan for his future so that my daughter's not left with the burden, Mm -hmm. financial or physical burden. Because I wonder, like, do you set up a trust? Do you try to set up a treatment guardian? Again, you two, there's two of you. So, you know, if your husband were to pass first, then you you would be here. But Mm -hmm. at some point, you two won't be here. And I I know this is the thing I hear a lot from families as they age and as their adult children age with, you know, serious persistent mental illness. They're like, okay, what do I set up? Mm-hmm. to make sure my kid's okay when I'm gone. Right. And that is something I need to think more about. I don't think about that enough, probably because I'm not worried about it, but it is important to plan for that, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, looking back over the last few years, what do you wish you had known that you know now? And again, mm-hmm. I think there'd probably be a lot of people listening to this who are somewhere along the journey that you 
have been on. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons this, this topic was requested by a bunch of listeners is this is such a common thing. Yeah. And do you have yeah. any thoughts about you know, what you've learned along oh, the way? Or wish, wish you'd known. Yeah. I've, I have learned so much. I mean, that's, I have I've two, there's two answers to that question because one for the sake of helping others and then one just actually, I think my own transformative transformation journey through this has been so profound. I mean, I'm not the same person I was. It's been, I think going through a suffering and a loss like this actually has been, oh, it's it's hard to say this because at the expense of my son, it's been one of, it's kind of this uh, contradiction or, or a paradox. It's been the most excruciating, painful experience, but one of my greatest gifts and teachers. It's been such a teacher. I almost feel like I've been on my own like medicine journey through this. So in a way, there's nothing I would change because I think if I knew things ahead of time, it wouldn't have taken me on the road I needed to be on for my own personal growth and transformation and um, the way I see the world now. But for the sake of like, I, I think I wish I knew that he was susceptible to this. I actually just found out a year ago that my grandfather's brother had schizophrenia. Mm. You know, of course, that wasn't known in the family. They didn't tell people that. So I didn't even know that that was a possibility. I didn't have any knowledge that marijuana could could be an environmental trigger. Yeah, so I guess those practical things of sometimes I wish I hadn't moved to Colorado. <laughs> so I don't know where it's so free and available. But, um, and sometimes, I mean, I think maybe I should have taken him out of the school. Or So there's a lot of things, I don't know, it can, it can start me on a spiral of guilt and things I should have done, which for me is never good. Right. But then we'll also never know. And I think this is such That's a, this thing. is such a therapy issue. You know, we work with people like this happened to me and my family. What if, but you know, even if we just piece together what we know, looking back, there was clearly a prodromal thing that started mm-hmm. happening in high school. Was that substance induced or not? We'll never know. Exactly. We'll never know. It seems pretty clear his psychotic break was related to substances, mm-hmm. but what is it going to happen anyway? We'll never right. know. You know, that best es- estimates now are that maybe 10% of cases in, of schizophrenia in the U.S., uh, the final trigger, the final catalyst was marijuana. But the other 90% probably, it's complicated. Like mm-hmm. weed was a factor, maybe head injuries or birth trauma or mm-hmm. just other fact. But again, I think I agree with you that the more we can try to stay in the now and not go back, what if, what if, because mm-hmm. it's just an unknowable loop. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And can lead to a lot of guilt, and I think that's—I mean—that's definitely something in the grief process. You go, th- you know, going through guilt, like, what if I'd done this? And yeah, getting stuck in that ruminating is, yeah, it can be almost make the grief pathological in a way, instead of just moving through the feelings of the grief, which is so important. I mean, you have to feel those feelings.
as we're wrapping up here, is yeah. there anything else that you wanted to add or areas that we didn't mm. touch on that you think would be important for listeners to hear? Wow, there's a lot of stuff I didn't mention, but I do think that one of the most important pieces of my own recovery, because it feels like a recovery in a way, I think, getting through, you know, continuing to get through this is support, supportive people, people who recognize your grief, and you can, you recognize your own grief. I also think that going through the grieving process is so important. So just even a couple weeks ago, I had a wave of grief hit me. And I mean, I was just like on the floor making guttural sounds, like just wailing. And then almost, it felt like all day crying. And it doesn't scare, I mean, I just, I know that I'm not going to feel like that forever. I have to let those feelings do their work (laughs) because it's a lot to grieve and we need to grieve. So it's really important to to feel the grief and then and have support have people around you that acknowledge the loss because that's really really important (laughs) yeah You can help Chris and me by sharing this episode with someone who might find hope or meaning in it. And as always, we love to hear your comments, thoughts, ideas. You can reach us through my website, craighecockmd.com.